The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so pleasure to be here and to see uh, again uh, many friends. I think it's been a while since I was last here. I know that um, the position of the speaker has been changed since I was last here. And the Buddha is more the center now. And the speaker is off center. (laughs) So it's a pleasure to be here. And I'll I'll just say also that I uh, have have a table that we set up out there that has a, a listing of upcoming teaching that I'm doing and also uh, a sign-up sheet if you want to be in contact through email, as well as uh, a few copies of the book that I did. The, the areas that have really been most important for me over the years have been first really um, just a love of the investigation of our minds, our hearts, our bodies, particularly in uh, retreats, and that's been very precious over the years, and it's an important really important um, part of my life. And I'll actually be at Spirit Rock, part of the team, along with Gil, doing the two-month retreat next February, March. And secondly, I've been very um, moved to help contribute to asking that question of what makes this practice of developing a clearer mind and a more open heart come alive in the kind of lives that we lead. Mostly, we would not say that we are not busy, to refer to that book that's going to be studied, The One Who Is Not Busy, that there are busy lives full of um, many dimensions that are not, so, are not really the kind of lives that monks or nuns lead. So exploring that's also been um, a passion, and lastly, really connecting this practice with our larger lives in the in the world, and really connecting the intentions of inner liberation with more outer liberation. That's also been really important over the years. And just mention one more thing that's on the table. One of the areas I've been working a lot with in the last year is bringing this practice into the exploration of how to be skillful with conflict. And whether it's uh, inner conflict or interpersonal conflict or organizational conflict or social conflict. And I'll just let you know that there is a flyer also for a two day training that I'm offering with a um, friend and colleague, Lawrence Ellis, uh, which is uh, in San Francisco, July 18th and 19th. And there's a flyer out there uh, as well as uh, information on my, my teaching schedule. So related to those, <clears throat> those interests, and realizing that um, this is the 4th of July weekend, I thought I would take as my theme this morning um, the 4th of July and the Four Noble Truths <laughs> and try to make that connection. Try to make that, <laughs> try to, try to make that connection between the two. Uh, and it's really about looking at the way that, we, as we know, the four noble truths or the four truths are probably the 
most fundamental orienting map for our practice. They give us a sense of uh, the possibility of freedom, of peace. And the assertion is that, that that reflects our deeper nature. So we're not trying to construct something new, but we're actually trying more to uncover what's deeper in ourselves and to let those moments of peace and understanding and open heart be recognized and cultivated so that we live more and more in that in that uh, way of being. And then the, you know, that's the third noble truth. And I'm actually going to start there. Uh, the first and second noble truths tell us about suffering and tell us how our lives often are stuck. We're caught. We get caught in typically old patterns that leave us um, reactive, trying to push away certain experiences. We're trying to grab hold of others, grab hold of people, push away people, push away truths about our experience. And we know that that is a very fundamental aspect of our personal lives and certainly of the collective lives. The um, newspapers are basically a report about the first noble truth. <laughs> they could have, you know, San Francisco Chronicle, first noble truth reports for today. <laughs> there is suffering. Where is there suffering? <laughs> here, 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 and here. And... Um, I don't know whether, the, like in the Chronicle, the date book section is supposed to be the equivalent of the third noble truth, but, <laughs> but you know, it's more like, okay, here's here's where you go for peace, you know, like what movies and television, basically, and it's it's a huh? fireworks yesterday. So um, so, and then the fourth truth is the set of practical ways, as it were, to move from the reality of suffering to the reality of peace. And what I want to suggest is that there's a, there's a powerful parallel when we look to the 4th of July and to the deep aspirations that are reflected in the birth of this uh, nation, the birth of this nation really as a dream of freedom, as a dream of uh, uh, equality, freedom, compassion. So I want to make some of the links between that and our basic Dharma practice of developing more clarity of mind, deeper peace, deeper wisdom, and a more open heart. The well-known uh, Zen teacher, Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, he said it this way, and in drawing the the parallels and suggesting the connection. He says, there are important values in Western society, such as the scientific way of looking at things, the spirit of free inquiry and democracy. If there is an encounter between Buddhism and these values, humankind will have something very new and very exciting. So I'm going to start with the third truth, the truth of peace, the truth of the deeper nature in ourselves, 
and look at its parallels with the kind of the the Fourth of July vision and the kind of the vision of this country. I think a vision of what, what we might call a spiritually grounded democracy, which is yet to be fulfilled. I think we know that. <laughs> and so I'll talk about the third truth first, then the first and second about suffering. The parallel there would be that which makes it hard to realize um, the dream of democracy, we might say. And then talk about the fourth truth. So basically three parts. And I'll hope to finish in time for some discussion, which will mean I'll have to be um, a little bit condensed in what I have to say. I could I could talk about this for a long time. And you may or may not be interested in hearing me for a long time. But anyway, so the. um, The third truth is really about the is about the sense of peace and the sense of um, really a sense of vision. It's important in our practice uh, because it points towards the possibility of freedom. And I think that we in our individual practice need to have that sense of what's possible. That's why experiences in meditation where we know a certain degree of peace or we see things more clearly are very, very important to sustaining us for sustaining us. There's a, in many of you know, in the um, Hebrew Bible, there's the statement, uh, the statement where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision, the people perish. I think that's true for individuals as well, that we need to have a deep vision of what motivates us. Uh, Viktor Frankl, who wrote about the concentration camps and was a, you know, a very powerful a psychotherapist after after the Second World War, and he himself, I believe, was in Auschwitz. And he, he said that it was that sense of vision and meaning which actually kept people alive. Of course, a lot of people uh, died who had great vision and meaning, but he said when he looked at the people who lived or who died, he said the people who lived were those who had some kind of meaning. It might just have been in keeping a sense of dignity or helping someone else in small ways. And that sense of vision directly connected with life. I think we know that, that when we're in touch with our own vision, our, what inspires us, something moves. And, and community gatherings like this and coming regularly is one way really of sustaining that. The third truth, I believe, is that which carries the vision. In among these four truths, it's that which tells us that there is a possibility of peace. And again, it can really relate to uh, the ways that we've touched that, the ways that we've touched what we might call uh, awakened being, the way that we've touched some of what in Buddhist language is, is called, are called the seven factors of awakening. Now, they're very down to earth, you know, the qualities of mindfulness, qualities of um, energy of real deep open inquiry of joy of tranquility of concentration equanimity when these states arise they give us a taste of a, a way of being balanced really really crucial when we touch that sense of openness and presence and feel that we we are I think reminded of that vision uh, ultimately, it's a sense of presence. And we know from many teachers that it's this 
And I think from our own experience that this quality of mindfulness opens up ultimately to this deeper sense of awareness and presence that is a very vast, very vast way of holding experience of being there. There's a beautiful poem I want to I want to read by um, by Rilke, which is about this quality of presence. Ultimately, it's something which goes beyond life and death that is pointed to by the third truth, sometimes talked about by words like uh, the unconditioned or the deathless or uh, Nibbana. This is a Rilke's poem called Buddha in Glory. And it really points to this deep, deep quality of presence, really even beyond our personality. Center of all centers, core of cores, almond self-enclosed and growing sweet. All this universe to the furthest stars and beyond them is your flesh, your fruit. Now you feel how nothing clings to you. Your vast shell reaches into endless space. And there the rich, thick fluids rise and flow, illuminated in your infinite peace. A billion stars go spinning through the night, blazing high above your head. But in you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. The Buddha often talked about the luminosity of our beings and that we touch and that we when we touch that, it, it has that quality of, of vision. I think it's also very crucial to keep that in relation to this, uh, I don't know, this dream of America or this dream of the United States. And it's very easy to lose that sense of vision. I know. I know for myself, kind of coming of age uh, at the end of the Vietnam War and living until the present um, the last few months, without any precedent, I could feel good about. It, it, I think it, it led me to sometimes be preoccupied with um, the negative, with what was problematic. How many of you have had something like that experience? <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think many. And so I just want to say that also in terms of our larger lives, our collective lives, that sense of vision, very crucial, the equivalent of the third truth. How do we keep that? How do we keep that sense of vision when when we uh, are very aware of the problems? And I was thinking of um, one of the persons who really brings that out. uh, If you listen to the speeches of Martin Luther King. You know, he, despite his deep familiarity with problems and issues, he always kept a sense of uh, the love of the core of the country. What we might, might say, the dream represented by the Fourth of July, the dream of this country at its best, which I believe is a deeply spiritual vision of equality and compassion and connection. And it's very easy to forget that or to not be in touch with that. And so I think if we think of our collective lives also in terms of the third truth that can help us. This is what this is what King said in 1961, and it really resonates with his later 1963. I have a dream speech. He said in 61, in a real sense, America is essentially a dream. A dream is yet unfulfilled. 
It is a dream of a land where people of all races, all nationalities, and all creeds can live together as brothers or sisters. The substance of the dream is expressed in these sublime words, words listed to cosmic proportions. And then he quotes the Declaration of Independence, which is kind of like yesterday's birthday announcement for the country. I thought I will read this, you know, just because we we don't read these. I think we this is in a sense. How do we stay in touch with the larger community, the big community vision? We can sometimes it's hard enough to stay in touch with our own individual visions, isn't it? To stay in touch with our own sense of hope and balance. So how do we do that also for our larger lives? So uh, King quoted the Declaration of Independence from July 4th, 1776. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all human beings, it actually said men, but all human beings are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among human beings, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that when any ever, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundations in such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So you have this amazing, it's really an experiment. How do you have a government that's actually dedicated to the people rather than to the kings and queens or to the rulers? You know, again, it's the dream imperfectly realized, but a tremendous, beautiful experiment also connected with dreams of equality, also dreams of compassion. I was thinking of the the um, Statue of Liberty, you know, on the words of the Statue of Liberty, where many immigrants came by. There are these words. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. You know, it's the Statue of Liberty, very much like Kuan Yin in the Buddhist tradition. Uh, Bodhisattva of compassion opening. And this this is what animates uh, this country at its best, the 4th of July at its best. And and having that vision is very, is very, very important. So I could talk about some of the other qualities that really uh, are there. I think in that vision, we could say, I, I would say of a spiritually grounded democracy, equality, compassion, a notion of wise, well-informed citizens. You know, that's it's a vision. I believe that this vision is our best future. You know, but it's important to carry that vision because now as I come to the first and second truth, we come up against the way that we fall short of the vision. You know, whether personally or collectively, we come up against suffering. And the, the, in the Buddhist tradition, the teaching is about the fact that there is suffering. And for many of us, that's what brings us to practice. That's what brings us to this hall. It's some way of finding our difficulties workable and not the final word. And it's why holding the vision is so crucial because the vision tells us whatever the suffering, whatever the sadness, the pain, the anger, the um, feeling of stuckness, there's something deeper. In fact, that's, that's really what this, these four truths collectively tell us. Whatever there is that's difficult, 
It's not the deepest part of who we are. The deepest part is something actually quite uh, wonderful, quite, quite beautiful. And yet we have to work with the first and second truth. We have to work with that suffering. And suffering is especially defined, I, I would say, in distinction with pain. It's quite an important distinction that the dimension of pain is something that we all experience. It's really the presence of the unpleasant. We have unpleasant experiences. We have um, we have bodies that age and that don't always feel good. We have neighbors such as I experienced to last night who set off firecrackers at three in the morning, setting up unpleasant experiences for a moment, but then practice can always come to the rescue at three in the morning. <laughs> Just a moment away. So we have unpleasant experiences. We're treated unfairly. We have uh, physical pain. We have emotional pain and so forth. And I think what the Buddha taught is that suffering is especially the reactivity to that pain. Sometimes it's said that pain is a given in our lives. Suffering is optional. And the wonderful teaching that for me most centrally expresses this and really another expression of the four truths is the teaching called the teaching of the two arrows or the two darts, which is that we're all, as it were, shot by an arrow. We're all, we all have um, the arrow of unpleasant experiences. The Buddha was asked how, since everyone has unpleasant experiences at times, how does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? And his um, answer was, we're all shot by a first arrow. What differentiates the practitioner from the non-practitioner is that the practitioner doesn't shoot a second arrow because of the first arrow, but that someone who is untrained, we might say, when there is pain, clenches around the pain or pushes it away, reacts in some way to what is unpleasant. And in a sense, shoots a second arrow either at self or other or both to try to get rid of that pain. It's the way that when we have physical pain, we tense and contract around it. That's the second arrow. You know, that when we um, have emotional pain, we, instead of just being with the emotional pain, what do we do? We tell stories for the next four days. Some of us do. <laughs> A few of us do. Like 98%. <laughs> so we, we, we clench physically. Many doctors say that almost all of what is actually experienced, a large percentage of what's experienced as pain in a medical setting is not the original stimulus, but it's the, the tensing around the original stimulus. As much as 80% of what people experience as physical pain is not the original stimulus, but it's the tens tensing. It's why mindfulness practice can be such a powerful intervention in a medical setting, because it's basically teaching people not to shoot the second arrow. A lot of good psychological work does the same, says learn how to be with the first arrow and how not to shoot the second arrow at yourself or others. And I think it can be obvious that what we call conflicts and wars are largely second arrow affairs. People shooting second arrows at each other because they've had pain. You know, 
not to simplify too much the Middle East, but both sides have pain, as it were, especially thinking of uh, um, Jews and uh, Palestinians. Both sides have great pain. They shoot arrows at each other. Again, not, there's a lot of complexities there, but it's essentially I have pain that justifies me in giving pain to others. And we, do, we can see that how that happens in our own interpersonal conflicts so much. And so that's, that's the core teaching. It's a teaching that there is suffering and that its roots are in some way in an inability to be present with what's there and, and a kind of reactivity. So what we practice in our mindfulness in very ordinary down-to-earth ways are ways simply to be present with the unpleasant as well as to be present with the pleasant without grabbing hold, to be, to be present with the unpleasant without reactively pushing away. doesn't mean we always have to be with it. It can be wise sometimes not to be with it. But we learn how to work with that kind of compulsive quality of our minds. It's a big part of our practice, just to sit with some unpleasant sensations, some unpleasant emotions, and to not just react in, in very ordinary ways. So the first and second truth takes us into the ability to be with pain without churning it into suffering. Not so easy. You know, and it teaches us about the roots of suffering in that reactivity. In the same way, I think what we what we really see if we take that vision of what I call the spiritual democracy seriously, we see that there there's vast levels of suffering connected with the uh, what the uh, difficulty of realizing the original dream you know, that we can think of we can think of the, the dream as highly imperfectly realized that the original vision gets covered over clouded right from the beginning the original vision very beautiful but the only people who could vote in, in 1789, were white adult men of property, right? And so a lot of the work of the country or the 4th of July vision is to realize the dream more fully, to find ways to do that. You know, one of the best ways that I found uh, in describing what, what this, these levels of suffering are, again, comes from uh, Dr. King, who says that there were three, there are three primary uh, ways that the vision of democracy gets covered over. He talked about the he talked about poverty, racism and militarism as being the three core ways that that the original dream uh, gets gets stuck. We can really connect that. The Buddha talked about greed, hatred and delusion. Very closely connected. Greed, hatred, and delusion as it manifests individually and as it manifests as it gets sort of crystallized in our institutions. And so he, uh, Dr. King said that um, if, a, if a person doesn't have a job or income, that person neither has life nor liberty nor the possibility for the pursuit of happiness. So he was looking at ways to say that these are particular forms of social suffering that have to be addressed if there's going to be that development of the kind of Fourth of July vision or the dimension of, of, of racism, very prevalent in the society, you know, tremendous uh, development uh, 
in some ways and, and not in other ways, you know. I think uh, my own sense is that President Obama reflects this kind of, uh, a lot of the enthusiasm for him reflects this deep pull to this, what I would call this uh, subterranean vision of a spiritual democracy you know, that really uh, has carried men, probably many of us who may have been enthused by his um, candidacy. You know? And maybe some of you who are against his candidacy were also drawn by the same impulse. So I want to be nonpartisan <laughs> here in this hall. And then lastly, King also talked about militarism you know, as a, as a threat to the vision of democracy, which we also find very deep with the founding, founding, um, so-called founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson once said, if there be one principle more deeply rooted than any other in the mind of every American, said in 1791, it is that we should have nothing to do with conquest. 1791. And so I think it's helpful we can really use the Buddhist tools to find ways to open up to that, that, uh, that suffering. It's one of the ways that I think we can really make use of the practices. And I wanted to uh, finish now with this last, last part to talk about the fourth truth, which is really how do we go from the realities of suffering to more fully realize our vision, whether it's individually or collectively. In our individual practice, we have the tools of the Eightfold Path, usually collected under the understanding of wisdom, training in wisdom, training in ethics and acting in the world, and training in meditation. So we we work to develop a clarity of intention. We work to develop our, our wisdom to understand particularly the four truths, you know, in terms of the um, unpacking the nature of wisdom in the Buddhist tradition is most directly unpacked precisely as what we're looking at this morning, the four truths. How, how do we understand suffering and its cause, freedom and what leads there? So this eightfold path is basically the way to realize the vision, way to realize freedom, to develop our wisdom, to develop our our ethics, our, our way of living impeccably with integrity, and then the particular practices of meditation to develop mindfulness, to develop concentration, to develop the ability to keep on coming back to being present, to keep on taking our lives as a chance to uh, learn, really, to take our problems and not so much to worry whether we're blessed or cursed, but rather to say, how can I learn from this? Is there the possibility of learning? Very difficult, isn't it? We think, oh, gosh, why can't things just go exactly the way I want? But that's really uh, a little (laughs) self-centered. And so, but how can we really look and say to take our lives most broadly as learning? Very difficult, right? When we're suffering, who wants learning? And yet somehow we have to come back to that. And that's why friends are so important, because they can remind us and we can take a different perspective. And so to me, it's a question of in terms of these, uh, the equivalent of the Eightfold Path, more in terms of the American dream. It's asking, how do we get closer to that vision? 
You know, and I think I want to just mention a few things. Part of it is something that I think we desperately need, which is an ability actually to open up more fully socially to our to our suffering and to uh, what we might call our wounds, and also the extent to which our country has done awful things, to really open up to that. We don't want to do that very much. Even Obama, for whatever reason, doesn't want to look at torture. Someone with a skillful sense of spiritual practice would say, be careful there. When you don't look at your suffering, you tend to cause it to keep repeating when you don't look carefully at that. And so the abilities that we develop in our practice to open up to what's difficult or unpleasant are tremendously needed, you know, in our families, in our organizations and in our larger society. We learn how to do that more skillfully, you know, and there are a lot of wonderful people who've helped us to do that more outside the individual capacity. People like Joanna Macy, who's one of my mentors and teachers who has these wonderful practices to help us, uh, bring opening to difficulties and pain and conflict more into the community life, the organizational life, and larger society. Part of it's just to remember the vision. And what I love uh, from having thought about this is I realized that the vision of uh, the spiritual democracy has actually been more carried by poets and artists and visionary politicians or visionary activists like King has been carried by Woody Guthrie or Walt Whitman or Bruce Springsteen or Annie DeFranco, some of some of you know, who who have the who have the through their poems. Um, this is what Walt Whitman said in 1871. We have frequently printed the word democracy, yet I cannot too often repeat that it is a word, the real gist of which still sleeps. Uh, quite unawakened. It is a great word whose history, I suppose, remains unwritten because that history has yet to be enacted. 1871. And so we can learn to open to what's difficult. We can really carry that vision forward in our very ordinary, everyday institutions and in our workplaces and so forth. And again, I think we can have our Buddhist practice can help there. And especially, I think, what we can really contribute with our sense of inner practice is to ask the question of what is the what are the inner practices which help us to uh, have this vision of a compassionate society and uh, a society of equality and wisdom? What are the inner qualities which make that real? What is that? How does it become real in a community level? How can we bring spiritual resources to conflict? It's one of the reasons I've been so interested in conflict. How can we bring that vision to how we speak with each other? how we communicate. We have resources here from wise speech. How can we bring mindfulness into our workplaces? How can we do all these things? There's a whole set of ways of being which are opened up, I think, by our practice, which I think, much like Thich Nhat Hanh said, there's, I think, a beautiful vision that's waiting of how we connect our inner work with our life in the world. And it really, I think, is part of, to me, this is what part of what's motivating people in the streets of Iran when they're out there, it's, they hardly would know it. They wouldn't frame it like this. They wouldn't frame it quite like this, but I think that it carries it. I think it carries people in the recent, um, some of the recent presidential campaigns. It's a vision that people almost have intuitively and hardly know sometimes of connecting inner liberation with outer liberation. I think we deeply 
want that. So let me just end with uh, one of my favorite uh, passages from the poet Gary Snyder, writing in 1961 about this kind of connection of the inner work and the outer work. He said this, the mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self void sense of emptiness and the deep uh, sense of presence. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path. Wisdom, prajna, meditation, dhyana, and morality, sila. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into that mind of love and wisdom to see this for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality or ethics is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the true community or sangha of all beings. So thank you so much for your attention. So we just actually have just a few minutes. Uh, We have a little bit of time. Do we usually finish right at 1045? Or can we go a few minutes over? Three minutes. Okay. So we have time for a question or two, if anyone has one or a comment. Right here up front. Yeah. Uh, this may or may not speak to the first and third noble truths. Um, what, what comes to mind earlier when you were talking about the, the exchange of arrows is, um, and, and I think Pima Shodun may have referred to this, is um, be, be becoming a target by holding on to uh, a, a lot of that uh, unpleasantness and uh, just holding and, and not letting go. Uh, and the, with respect to uh, Victor Frankl's uh, book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, what I took away from reading that book was uh, one, of, one of his conclusions was that uh, we can't change, uh, we can't control what happens to us, but what we can control is how we respond and mm-hmm. react to what yeah. happens to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's, that's really, I think, at the core of our practice. It's... Uh, um, Stephen Levine has a nice phrase where he says we don't we don't relate so much from a given experience, but we relate to it. So we're not so much controlled by the strong emotions or the reactions, but we learn how to relate to it, not from it. It's a very I think that's a very nice way of saying it that we uh, we. Um, we really can come at whatever we're experiencing from the perspective of these four truths, ultimately, that we, we learn partly by community, by gatherings, by more and more doing this practice and bringing it into our daily lives, that it's possible to really to take anything and have it be workable. It's one of the great mercies of this practice. Everything is workable, even when we don't think it's workable. Another reflection or question, comment? This one back here. Back here. How do you define workable or or how would you apply that? Yeah, the question is how to define workable. Uh, Because I think this is 
at the center of our practice. It's it's really it's probably more of a direction. Um, probably the for for many of us the most difficult things in our lives may not be immediately workable. But what we can do with a large number of things in our experience, where formerly we were reactive or on automatic pilot, is that we can uh, say, okay, I'm engaged in this pattern with my mother, let's say. This feels familiar. (laughs) I've done this 21,743 times in the past. And today, July 5th, 2009, I suddenly had an insight that I was doing it. And it's really that moment of uh, mindfulness bring mindfulness brings some space. And I can ask the question, do I want to do this or that? Do I want it really It's really about spaciousness, ultimately, that I'm not driven by whatever's happening that with mind. That's why how mindfulness works. It gives me some space in the mind so that I'm not driven to act automatically. And that's ultimately what workable means. Some things that we experience are quite difficult and they may actually at the moment may not be directly workable. We may be I may have a quality of fear that's just too much and I can't really deal directly with it. But maybe I can it can be workable in the sense that I can know that that maybe I want to aim for that and I can do something which helps me be a little more balanced so that I can then work with it. So I'm not saying that everything at every time we immediately <clears throat> should have mindfulness. There are things that occur for us which are really, really difficult, but we can aim to make to move towards it being workable. But workable ultimately means the ability to uh, uh, have some awareness of what's happening and have some choices. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. I think no more than one more. If there is, then we'll, then we'll have to finish. Yeah. Can you do that for me, please? The the reading mm-hmm. from Gary Snyder. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It was. Um, he, you know, like I say, the, I'll, I'll preface it a little bit because um, uh, what I find is it's really crucial that we keep the sense of vision, whether it's personal vision for what's important for me in my life, or a collective vision. And we have to find ways to do that. I think we have to find ways. So sometimes it's by not being too busy. Busyness covers over vision. You know, busyness can tends to maybe not necessarily, but it tends to cover over uh, our vision. That's why sometimes we need silence to really hear what our deeper longings are. That's why retreats are so beautiful. We can actually have this sense of being with silence and I can actually hear, oh, that was, that's what I really want with my life. When we get too busy, it's hard. And what I found on the, on the social level, a lot of the visions like of the 4th of July have been carried by poets and artists. And people who somehow touched that were other, you know, presidents forget about the vision. They're just being political very often. But who carries the vision? It's often the, the, the artists or the uh, musicians or, or so on. And they're, they're in touch with that. You know, and I, I, it's very inspiring for me to kind of see that more clearly or certain visionary activists, we might say. And so Snyder is poet, activist, Buddhist. And he had this wonderful statement of essentially saying that the, that the there's this social vision 
in Western tradition connected with justice. That is a real is really about liberation. Ultimately, it goes back to the Jewish prophets and the story of Exodus, right? Leaving oppression with the Pharaoh and coming out of oppression. That that story has been at the heart of the civil rights movement, for example, the Exodus story in the in the Hebrew Bible. That social justice movement on the one hand, and then the inner liberation on the other. Very beautiful uh, combination. I think we're still learning very much what that means. I think we actually don't really know what that means so so well. We're still moving in that way. So Snyder was attuned to that. How many of you know Gary Snyder? So, wonderful poet, so, Pulitzer Prize winner, lives in Nevada City, uh, nearby, often comes to Berkeley or to San Francisco or to, you can invite him to Redwood City. <laughs> the mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self-void. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path, wisdom or prajna, meditation, dhyana, and morality, sila. And those three aspects define the Eightfold Path. As some of you know, that the aspects of the Eightfold Path are all contained in those three. That's, that's often understood. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity, that lies beneath one's own ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into the mind to see this for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the true community or sangha of all beings. So thank you so much for your attention. And I will be here for a while if anyone wants to talk further. And out, out in the foyer also. Thank you. But let's first, hold on, I forgot. My mistake. We want to finish just with the dedication of merit. So let's just sit for 30 seconds or stand, whatever you're, wherever you are. Maybe just to let whatever was helpful from the morning be there with you for a short while. And we remember that we do this practice not just for ourselves, but for others as well. And we offer what's been fruitful from the morning out beyond these walls, beyond the boundaries here, out into the world for the benefit and healing and freedom of all beings. So thank you again so much. <laughs>